Morning. Good to be here. Good to be back in the pulpit. I uh, just want to follow on from what Mike spoke about last week. I really, really enjoyed his message on the winds of doctrine and not succumbing to false doctrine and the false stuff that's going on. So I've chosen to preach about um, Revelation chapter 2, reading from verse 12, where Jesus, through the Apostle John, speaks to the church in Pergamum. And uh, in verse 12, it says in Revelation 2, this is God's word. Let's listen carefully. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone and a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So that, that can be quite a confusing passage, but let's start and we can look at this wonderful, wonderful passage. Church leaders divide people into two groups, thermometers and thermostats. A thermometer registers, records, and reveals the temperature. Its behavior is definitely determined from without. A, a therm thermostat does exactly that, but it also has one element, important element. It has the element of control. It not only records, but it actually determines, because it's a thermostat, in fridges, in geysers, in air conditioning rooms, it determines the environment. That's the difference. And at its best, the church should be a thermostat. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, what the good, what the acceptable, what the perfect will of God is. At its best, the church should always, always have a huge influence on our environment, on schools, on hospitals, on charities, not to be controlled by those things. We need, as a church, to put color into the environment, not take, our, take its color from the environment. And today, that's the pressure that is confronting the church. 
just too tolerant of what's going on out there. Content to coexist with the world. And this was the peril of what was going on in the church in Pergamum. The church which tolerates the world is a church that's going to diminish. The church historian, Bulwa Lytton, said this, the strength of Christianity has always been, the strength of Christianity has always been its genius of intolerance. Intolerant of sin. Intolerant of sinful behavior. Intolerant of the values and the behavior of the world. Intolerant of the philosophies of men and of nations. That is not in accordance with the word of God. And that intolerance has caused unbelievers to sit up, to take notice, and to see that there's something special about the church, and especially something special about the Lord and Master whom we serve. So in Pergamum, there were, in verse 13, it says, this is Satan's throne. So in Pergamum, there was a lot going on. If Paul had visited, he would have said to the guys in Pergamum, like he said to the Athenians on Mars Hill, I perceive that you guys are very religious. This was not a commercial center, but this was a religious center. And there was a temple which, a, which had a huge throne to Zeus. I don't know if you... Got that picture. Okay, let's look at the Zeus picture. Okay, not that one. Huh. Okay, so there's the amphitheater, and that's the throne to Zeus. Let's go to the other picture. Okay, that, that, that it was totally rebuilt and uh, put into a museum in Berlin uh, in Germany. So there was this massive, massive throne. So the throne, where Satan has his throne, the city that has its, uh, Satan's throne. So this was a city that gave hospitality to a whole lot of gods. Zeus, Bacchus, Aphrodite, Escalabius, and it, it had uh, the Babylonian religion there, where Nimrod uh, from the Babylonians, a very immoral, almost antichrist a uh, very unclean type religion, Escalapius. Now, I want to show you that mediclinic thing. Escalapius was, it's a symbol of, of, of medicine. Okay, you see the snakes that come up? And that was, the, that's the symbol, medical symbol. And I mean, if you, if you Google anything, I'm not going to get into that, saying it's whether it's satanic or not, but that was the, the, the symbol, and it's even used today. And you see it's mediclinic. I think they have changed the... Uh, local, a, a little bit, but it takes the form of a serpent. And you see, Christians didn't have a problem that Pergamum was a place of healing, but it was the way in which it was done. They knew nothing about hygiene, they knew nothing about anesthetics, and the best doctor was the doctor that had the most blood on his hand and his apron. And then it was also used by Rome, 
for emperor worship. You know, at this point, to try and unify the Roman Empire, uh, you have to give worship to Caesar. You could worship other gods, and that's fine. You got a certificate, but you had to go and you had to say, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians, the early Christians, refused to do that. And they were automatically regarded as disloyal and revolutionary. And they sometimes were put to death. They were fair game in the Colosseums and the amphitheaters of the ancient world. They refused to say Caesar's Lord. There was only one Lord. And his name was Jesus. And that's why it was regarded as the seat where Satan had his throne. The Living Bible says it was the center of satanic worship. When did it become the center of satanic worship? When did it become Satan's throne? Was it before the church started or after the church? Well, let's look at some of them. Maybe, maybe the, the, the church had been there for a while. Maybe, uh, well, let's, let's start off with... Let, it was a place of satanic worship. And into that environment, the church comes. I mean, we've been at churches around the world that are thinking, hmm, this is a little church that's starting off. A number of years ago, we were in England, and the 412 guys said, please, will we go and visit a new church plant in a, in a, in a city on the, I think it's the Humber River, it's on the east side of England, it's a coastal port, it's called Hull. I said, what, what, what is the place called? Hell. Hull. I mean, I thought, this is a rough place to start a church. Really rough place. But into that environment, this little church started. And into this place, this church started. They heard the call of the Lord. And they were willing to face desperate odds in this environment. You see, God calls us to minister to the hopeless. Not only where there's hope, but to minister to the hopeless. And they trusted God in the face of these momentous, gigantic obstacles. They said, we're going to go in and minister the name of the Lord. And they did that. You see, sometimes we need to realize that you don't always learn faith through comfortable surroundings. And God called them to go in and to minister into this satanic involvement, satanic hornet's nest. Maybe it was the other way around, where the church was there, where the church was warring, and Satan thought, uh-uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and establish my throne in that environment. That the church was warring so valiantly, was making such headway against the forces of evil, that Satan became alarmed. But a live, conquering church always has its opposition. See, when the forces of evil are coming our way, we know that we're doing something right. Because... You know, Satan wants to defame us. He wants to revile us. He wants to berate us and insult and condemn and denounce.
but every area where the church has been victorious has been an area, uh, an era where there's been opposition. A church that nobody fights is a church that can be ignored. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you. See, we cannot keep friendship with honest people and with crooks at the same time. We cannot keep friendship with those who keep the law and with those who violate the law. We cannot keep uh, friendship with those who place money above everything else but those and, and with those who want to seek first the kingdom of God. Christian, a church, needs to be a, fo- a positive force in the world. We are called to be the salt of the earth. We are called to be the light of the world. And we need to stand up for social righteousness and for individual righteousness as well. Even in the midst of incredible antagonism that sometimes comes our way. And if we as Christians are meeting no opposition, we need to look at our guidebook. What actually does the guidebook say? You see, in this passage, it talks about there's somebody that's given his life already. He's been a faithful witness. He's been called Antipas. I don't think that that was his name. Antipas is a nickname. Antipas, against all. Against all. So here, in this environment, was this man, no soft son of compromise. He was a man who stood up and he says, I'm not going to be compromising. I'm going to stand tall. I'm going to stand faithful to God. And they took his life. And that's why it was called Satan's capital. But I want to just point out too, Who is the opposite of God? Who's the opposite of God? No one. There is no opposite. Some people say, Satan. No, he's not. He's not the opposite of God. He's a created being. God created him. He's not in the same league and he's not even on the same level as God. He's not the same as God. He's limited. He was created. He cannot be in every place at every time like God can. God is omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, and He's omnipresent. The devil can't be that. And so we need to realize this. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to understand what First John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We have power over the forces of Satan. Even if you dwell where Satan's, Satan dwells, even if you dwell in Satan's throne. And I don't think that there's a church on the face of the earth that needs to be fearful of that. If God has planted you in that place and you have God's strength and God's spirit, 
we can overcome in those situations. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So the Lord comes to this church, gives them that affirmation, gives them, but he says, this is my criticism. I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you, he says in verse 14, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat sacrificed uh, things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. Now, you, if you don't know the history of the Old Testament, I'm, I'm, I'll let you know. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> you, that's a very confusing verse. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. We read about it in Numbers 22, 23, 24. Balaam was a prophet. He had the ability to bring blessing or cursing on people, on groups. So when the Israelites came from Egypt and they were making their way to the promised land, the Moabites looked out at these Israelites, the swarm of people, and they thought, uh-oh, here comes trouble. The king of Moab, Balak, looked and he said, oh, I, I, I know of a prophet, Balaam, who has got this incredible ability to curse or to bless. Balaam, come and visit me. Those people, I want you to curse them. And look, I've got this treasure chest of wealthy goodies, gold, silver, jewels, that I'll give to you. Like a good prophet, for a moment at least, Balaam said, hmm, let me check this out with the Lord. So Balaam says, okay, I'll go and check it out with the Lord. And the Lord says, don't you dare curse them. Don't you dare. Goes back to Balak, the king, and says, God has said no. So Balak says, I've got an extra big treasure chest here. More. So Balaam says, mm, let me check it out with God. Now he's already checked it with God. And God said, no. But maybe he can twist God's arm. So he goes back to the Lord and the Lord says, no. Three times it happens. But he's trying to be as true as possible to his relationship with God. And eventually he says, I can't do it. I can't curse these people. No matter how big your treasure chest is, no matter how big your gifts are, I can't bring a curse on the Israelites. Can't do it. And King Balak is disappointed. But here comes the crunch. Balaam thinks about this and he thinks, I, 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 I know a way. I know a way. I'm going to go back to Balak and tell him what I think. He says, this is God's people. 
God has blessed them. I can't bring a curse on them. They can bring a curse on themselves. Listen carefully. You get your girls to go into that midst and get them to eat sacrificed uh, uh, um, food sacrificed to idols. You get them to commit sexual acts with the Israeli boys and, and, and you yeah, just mix it up. Mix the things of the world with the things of God and they'll bring a curse on themselves. And that's the teaching of Balaam. When you mix the things of the world with the things of God, be sure that it will bring down. Make them believe that God will keep them not only if they obey Him, but also if they rebel against Him. Not only if they do right, but also if they do wrong. God will still keep them. And eventually, God sent the plague. And many people died. You see, to fail... If you fail to obey the physical laws, you die. If you fail to obey spiritual laws, you die. You see, if we call ourselves Christians and neglect our known duty to put our hands on the unclean, it'll end in tragedy. And Balaam had this doctrine, this, this, this theology of unconditional salvation. And it's wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. Listen to what Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 to 21 says. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you of those who practice such things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. The people who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So Balaam says, I cannot violate my command with God. But there is another way of doing this. Just teach them about unconditional salvation. You see, we cannot mix it up with the things of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord. God never, ever, ever Less is a mixture. Never will do it. So let me ask you, are you tolerating some things in your life that you know that God condemns? Are you putting up with some things that you need to that, that you know that God needs you to extract from your life, to get rid of in your life? Is there possibly 
an element where there's spiritual adultery taking place in your heart? Do I have something of the world in my life which I know is enmity with God? God says, get rid of it. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. Abstain from all forms of evil. So this passage here really is saying, separate yourselves from all evil influence. Get rid of wrong associations. Anything that might be offensive to God. Stop playing around with them. Come clean. Be separate. Jesus describes himself in verse 12 here as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The Roman governors had the right in Pergamum of the sword. If they decided, no, we're going to end your life right now, they had the ability to kill you right there and then. Jesus says, I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The Roman governors could have the satanic authority to do that, but over and above that is Jesus, who is the risen Christ. His authority is much greater. And he says to them, I have the sharp two-edged sword, and I want to commend you. You hold fast my name. I mean, I love that. You hold fast the name of Jesus. There is such power in the name of Jesus. There's such incredible power. We don't use the name of Jesus. If there's anything that you want to know that, that, that Hollywood and the world wants to do, it wants to downgrade the name of Jesus. In every single movie, even with a PG restriction and with family on it, they use the name of Jesus to try and belittle it. But there is such power in the name of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, Therefore, also God highly exalted them and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the name of Jesus, it's glorious. It's saving, it's sovereign, and it grinds and it grates that dark and dreadful passion within Satan. It challenges him, it's in his face, and we need to use the name of Jesus more often. He loathes and he detests the name of Jesus. It brings him impotence and it brings him his doom. It's no good using our own muscle and our own ability, our own past experiences. We need to use the name of Jesus. Keep that name. Use it often. When you find yourself in difficulty, say that name, Jesus. It will bring authority. Bring victory. And then Jesus goes on and he says, watch these pronouns. I'm coming to you and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Coming to you, 
Some of you have been faithful, but you are allowing this doctrine of wrong associations, things of the world, to come in and to intermingle with you as a church. And I'm coming to purify. We live in a fruit-producing area. Some of you are involved in the fruit industry. If I get a box of apples and there's 50 apples in that box and three start to rot, I can't say, you know, there's 47 other apples and maybe those 47 other apples are going to make those other apples healthy again and, and, and good. I have to get rid, I have to extract those bad apples because slowly but surely those bad apples are going to eat away. I had cancer a number of years ago and I had to have an operation and take that prostate out because slowly but surely that prostate, and that was, the guy said, if you do nothing, you'll have a life expectancy of 10 years and that was 16 years. I had to extract. And that's what cancer does. That's what bad apples do. They, they, they begin to rot everything else. And we need to war against that situation. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will give hidden manna. What does that mean? Hidden manna is really bread. Supernatural bread. Jesus says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He's the one who sustains us. You see, you can't do many things. People can't do many things for you. But some things that you, you can't sleep for somebody else. You can't eat for somebody. You have to eat it yourself. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. We have to eat of him. It has to be a personal experience. It can't be a second-hand opinion. It can't be something else that we glean from somebody else. It has to be an experience, a relationship that we have to experience ourselves. He's the bread of heaven. I've given you hidden manna. We need to have that experience that we have with our Lord and Savior. And then he goes on and he says, I've given you a white stone. White stone? What does that mean? In the ancient law courts, the jury were given two stones. One was a white one, and one was a black one. When they heard the case, they gave their opinion, their, their judgment. And into the urn, I put the black stone, so they put a white stone. See, this is the doctrine of justification that's right here. Just as if it never happened. He's been cleared. A white stone. There is therefore now, says Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those that overcome, I will bring justification and a new name on that stone. What is a new name? In the Old Testament, they changed the names of people. Abram became Abraham. Jacob because he wrestled all night with God, got the name of Israel, Jacob. 
usurper, grabber. You know, some Afrikaans guys name their children Jacobus. It's not a great name, eh? And Jacob became Israel, prince of God. Prince of God. And I will give you a new name on that white stone. God wants to present his church all glorious with no stain or spot or wrinkle. And there are times that the Spirit of God comes to us and challenges us and says, if there's something wrong in your Christian life, if there's something wrong in your life, in my relationship that I have with you, I want you to extract and take it out. Is there possibly something in your life that you want to get rid of, that you need to get rid of in terms of your relationship? Are you tolerating some form of compromise in your personal lives that if it is multiplied, you forfeit your testimony, you forfeit the testimony of the church? You are no stronger as a church than its members. Susanna Wesley was the mother of a number of children, two of which were John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley was responsible for the Methodist Church, brought revival along with George Whitfield and some other that changed the course of England. England was going down a road, and because of that revival, the whole history and the direction of England changed. Great, great men. Charles was a great follower of John, but a wonderful musician who wrote many, many marvelous uh, hymns. But the mother, what an amazing woman. And she said this, there are two things about the gospel. You have to believe it. And you have to behave. Do you need to extract stuff out of your life in order to honor him today? 